Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of To Be Determined with Dan and Bill. Yes, and today we're going to be looking at another lighthearted romp through the field of human extinction. This time brought to you by the letters B and W. And this time they don't stand for Bill Williamson, they stand for Biological Warfare. Probably one of your lesser known cousins. Yeah, today's story is from James Tiptree Jr. We'll get into that pseudonym in a, in a few moments here. Uh, the story itself is one of the later ones that she wrote, which is called The Last Flight of Dr. Ain, or Dr. Ain. It's A-I-N. I'm not sure I which I call it Dr. Ain, and I thought it was actually one of the early ones. It's from 1969. Oh, you are absolutely right. I screwed it up. So maybe you're thinking of another later story. While I was reading the, the notes at the beginning of this one, it made reference to the last story that she wrote that was or the last published science fiction story, and I got it crossed up in my head as I was thinking there. So, I was actually kind of surprised that I had never actually read this story um, after you had sent it over, uh, especially given the acclaim it's gotten over the years. It is one of her fairly well-referenced works and one of her early works, but uh, I guess that just goes to show that there's a lot more things I don't know in the world than I actually do. Well, and this one, as as you just pointed out, was originally published in March of 1969 in Galaxy Magazine. And so we made reference, James Tiptree Jr., if you aren't already in the know, that is a pseudonym for Alice Sheldon, who went through life, early life, I should say, as something of an artist, wasn't very successful at it, at some point began doing writing and editing, and started publishing under the name of James Tiptree Jr., Tiptree from a brand of marmalade. Yeah, it's always interesting when you have these authors that, you know, go under the pseudonyms and there's always seems to be various reasons, you know, protecting their professional reputation or things like that. And in this particular case, uh, Alice Sheldon publishing as James Tiptree Jr., the most interesting explanation I've run across so far is that you know, she did a lot of things, right? She was right. in like the photo intelligence corps in the Air Force and one of the early members of the CIA and just did all these things in a very male dominated field. And apparently she was kind of one of those people that they'd be like, oh, yeah, a really good intelligence officer for a girl or, you know, a right. really good so and so for a girl. And I can see how she probably got pretty tired of that after a while. And when she started writing, she's like, oh, I'm going to publish as a male pseudonym. And that way it's not going to be, hey, this is good science fiction for a girl. You're actually going to be, you know, compared on the merits of your work, not, uh, you know, who you happen to be. And she managed to pull that off uh, to, to maintain that anonymity, so to speak, from the pseudonym all the way until 1976, around the time that her mom died. And she made reference to it in the guise of Tiptree and fans figured out that it was actually that she was, well, that James Tiptree was Alice Sheldon. So... Yeah, so, I mean, there's been a lot, obviously, written about Tiptree, uh, a.k.a. Sheldon. So, you know, if you really are interested in her as a as an author and as a person, there's there's plenty of stuff out there on the Internet if you're, you want to follow up. But we should probably talk a little bit about the, the story that she wrote, uh, The Last Flight of Dr. Rain. So, Bill, you want to kick us off with the characters? 
we've got a, a host of characters, but we're only going to mention a couple of them because most of them are kind of background. They're, they're just sort of incidental plot references. Uh, the main character, the primary character that, that we spend most of our time with is, is Dr. Ain himself, Dr. Charles Ain, who is a noted immu immunologist and has done a lot of research into diseases and vectors and so on. Uh, there's another character, a, a woman who is on a lot of, well, all of the flights that he takes throughout the, the course of the story. She's never named. There's a connection between them. Um, it's explored in different ways. We'll get into that um, as we go. Um, the only colleague that, that we see discussed in any detail is, is one of the professors that Dr. Ain had worked with while he was doing his studies, someone who has a lot of respect for him and gets interviewed in Glasgow after having seen him on a flight. Um, there's various other researchers that are mentioned and various other like government agents and police officers and stuff like that. But again, they're all incidental to the plot and not given names for the most part. So there you have it, a small cast of characters, as is so often the case, um, and one of them is key to everything, and that's Dr. Ain. Yeah, another thing to note, at least for me when I first read this story, is it's a little odd the way the story is written or the way the story is narrated, because it's a little unclear who's actually telling the story. It seems to shift perspectives. Like, sometimes it seems like it's being told from the perspective of someone who's like writing a report on Dr. Rain and his actions. Sometimes it's the narrative of somebody who's talking about an agency tracking him. Sometimes it seems to be written from the perspective of Ain himself. So just reading the story, at least the first time through, I was a little jarred at these transitions. Not that the story, not that the writing is bad, right? This writing is very good. It's just, you know, a little odd when you first start reading it, when you go through these little shifts in, in narrative structure. Yeah, you're right. The narrative perspective is, is one of those things that's difficult to track here. And at times it almost feels like a historical retrospective on a key moment um, in history, as we'll discover as, as the story unfolds. And in other cases, it feels like it's being told from the perspective of characters within it, although it's unclear always which characters and, and what that perspective might mean. So anyway, we, we start from the perspective of, they, they say, well, Dr. Rain, he's recognized, he's on a flight to Chicago coming from Omaha. They talk a little bit about, you know, some a, a colleague recognizes him who is apparently suffering from the flu, and it's noted that almost everybody's got the flu nowadays, um, chats for a little bit, and again, he's going from Omaha to Chicago. Once he arrives there, they they mentioned he goes underground, that the city is covered in smog. And and here we get the first reference to this uh, this mysterious woman who's traveling with Dr. Ain. And they, they mention that it, you know she's wounded and dying, but no one nearly seems to notice her at first. It begins this cycle of... It, it, the title of the story, again, is The Last Flight of Dr. Ain but it's really a series of flights. And again, we, we begin on the Omaha-Chicago flight, and then the next leg is Chicago to New York, and then we go New York to Glasgow. And so each one of these little legs, there's, there's a little narrative segment that gets mentioned somehow. Well, and it, we track Dr. Ain, possibly the woman, and other people who note, recognize, or interact with him, or even just, again, just, just observe that he was present. Yeah, and every time he stops somewhere, you get a little bit more background on kind of how society is and how the environment is and 
And for instance, he goes to New York and they talk about how the, the environment is in really bad shape. There's smog and there's like a ship just belching out smoke offshore. They talk a little bit more about the woman that she's, you know, steadily weakening. You see, he sees a bunch of protesters who are, are talking about deforestation in the Amazon. In the terminal, the, he meets or a woman notes that Dr. Ain looks like he's sick or he's coughing. And like I just mentioned, everybody's got the flu. It seems she kind of takes herself and her kids away from him. He takes a hit of some sort of of like throat spray that, that that calls attention to it again because of all of the sickness about. Yeah, not like our environment today. That's for sure. <laughs> well, and one of the things that happens frequently, there is a reference made to him going outside whenever he's able and feeding seed to the birds. And that becomes relevant later on as well. But it's one of those, it's just a little detail that keeps slipping in about him being drawn to places or drawn to moments, I should say, opportunities where he can go cast some bird seed from his pockets out to these different birds. Yeah. And here you see one of these shifts in perspective where they say something to the effect of, they were sure the woman was traveling with him, even though there weren't any records. So you, again, you get this, wait, who's he's, who's traveling? Who's watching right. Dr. Ain? What's what's going on? But anyway, you know, moving on, he eventually ends up next in Iceland, where, uh, as Bill said, he gets off the plane for his layover, goes to a little park, feeds some more birds. And in a little narrative that apparently is going on in his mind, he's reminiscing about when he first met this woman. You know, she's the love of his life. He compares her to this mountain nymph. She's just all beautiful and no sign of being sick at the time. Um, just, you know, a, a, a good pastoral history of, of his relationship with her. As we board the flight from Iceland to Glasgow, um, a stewardess notes that he is the last aboard and that he stays awake for the entire time, doesn't notice anything about this woman because there are lots of women on the flight. These kinds of details are continue to be revealed to us, and, and it's it feels like it's incidental, and yet there's this pattern of this kind of stuff. Right, so he gets to Glasgow, and this is where that uh, former colleague we mentioned in the character section pops in. Uh, well, first we note that, or somebody, whoever it is who's writing or telling the story, notes that, that Dr. Ain's taking a multiple flights instead of a direct flight. He's eventually ending up in Moscow, right? And apparently instead of getting there in one quick transatlantic flight, he's you know, making all these stops all over the place, apparently to, quote-unquote, escape attention. Of course, we don't know whose attention or who's looking for him or why, but that's just how the story's written. And he says something about you know not being able to take direct flights because they were all booked up, but that proved to be untrue. And, and, and that's, again, one of those observations that hints at it being, you know, some official agency of some sort that is that is narrating at least part of the story. Yeah, so we get this professor or this colleague of Dr. Ain who is apparently going, they're apparently all going to a conference in Moscow to present findings about, you know, something or other. And again, now you get this professor being interviewed about his experience meeting Dr. Ain. And the professor kind of relates his background. He was one of Ain's early teachers, discusses how brilliant he is and, and some of his early work in something called enzyme conversion, uh, kind of casually mentions that he was recruited to go work for apparently the American government, and then mentions that he doesn't appear to be a radical. He's not a part of any particular cause. 
And then that's pretty much it. Then we move on to the next part of the story. Although they do mention that the, this colleague doesn't make any reference to this woman traveling with him or, or anything else about this other character. And again, along the way, after Glasgow, we stop in Oslo and Bonn. He gets off, he feeds the birds, and then eventually we wind up in Moscow. Yeah, there's a little bit of section where, again, we've got more, more of his obsession with this woman um, going back a little bit into her past, saying that she was used to be all hale and healthy and well. And you start to wonder after a while, who is this person and, and what role does she really play in this story? But um, we'll, we'll be getting into that in a second, so bear with us. Right. And so once we get to Moscow, again, we get to this professional conference of some sort. It seems to be dealing with disease, diseases and disease vectors and immunology and so on. And he gets in late. He misses the first day. When he gets his time to speak, he seems muddled. He seems um, like he's he's talking about things that he's already talked about in the past, but people forgive that, assuming that he is somehow being prevented or um, he's been told not to reveal stuff because, again, he's working for the government. There's a hint now that it's not just the government, but that it's specifically the military and that he's been doing research into weaponizing different kinds of diseases. Yeah, and one interesting thing to note is that while he's at this conference, he gets this transatlantic phone call, and you only hear one quick side of the story. Apparently, you know, somebody calls him up, says something is missing from his lab, and, and Ain's like, ha, 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 yeah, oh, hey. and, oh yeah, by the way, that was really a, a quite active sample or something to that effect. Another person at the conference accuses Ain of, you know, basically outright developing biological weapons for the military, and Ain says, you're perfectly right. I am, in a very kind of disarming way. So in contrast to the rest of this entire rambling speech that he's been giving, he, he goes off on evolutionary theory. He talks about something about Hudson's bellbird singing for a later race, and people are like, what is this guy talking about? But then, all of a sudden, he jumps into this like very comprehensive, very cohesive explanation of how to mutate and design a, a highly contagious leukemia virus and how it can be targeted at higher primates and uses warm-blooded animals and airborne transmission, and that no one can defend against it, and it, it uses the body's immune mechanisms to, to make sure it can't be stopped. And he mentions that in their testing, or small animals and, and quote-unquote lower-order animals and mammals have a 90% survival rate, but it's 100% effective at killing humans, and any higher primates, the longest anyone's lasted after exposure is 22 days. And so now people are beginning to... Freaking out. <laughs> they're, they're becoming alarmed that not only is he freely discussing this, but there's also, again, the phone call that happened before about something missing from his lab, and he basically admits, yep, something got out, and it's, it's bad. He looks sick. Everybody around him looks sick. Everyone's got symptoms of the flu. Like we said, it's been going all over the place. And all of a sudden, two and two are starting to come together in the conference attendees' minds. And so one of the passages here says, These words fell into a silence broken only by the running feet of a Shycom delegate making for the door. Then a gilt chair went over as an American bolted after him. Ain seemed unaware that his audience was in a state of unbelieving paralysis. It had all come so fast. So, yeah, all of a sudden, all of these experts in... in the field of research that relates to this very, very deadly disease, they're all in one room together, and now they're all realizing the shit has hit the fan. 
Absolutely. And some of them chase after Dr. Rain. He basically delivers his bombshell and leaves to get on another flight. And some people chase after him. And he just basically turns and tells the audience, yes, of course, it is very wrong. I told you that. We are all wrong. Now it's over. <laughs> and then he hops on board a flight to Karachi, I think. Yes. Yeah. And so they, they catch up with him. Well, they, meaning government officials, uh, doesn't say which government, but people track him down. Security people catch up with him in Hong Kong. And that's when they take him into custody. And at the moment, all they are thinking is that there's been a security breach and that he is somehow involved. They aren't necessarily thinking of it as a toxic event. And so they they handcuff him, but they're, they they take him on yet another flight and they're they're going to bring him to um, to Hawaii, but from Hong Kong, they first go to Osaka, Japan, and then from Osaka, Japan to Hawaii. So you, you follow this chain. He's been zigzagging all over the planet, hitting all of the continents, or at least every one of them that's populated, and everywhere he stops, he's feeding birds when he can, and he's out and about, you know, talking to people, and he's becoming progressively more sick this entire time. So, in other words, he's spreading the disease. Yeah, he's basically going delirious, right? By the time he gets to Hawaii, he's mumbling and he's rambling about this woman that we mentioned earlier in the in the story. Messages to this this mysterious woman that's been referenced through this throughout the story, and we begin to wonder, or there begins to be some confusion over what she he's referring to. Is it the woman or is it in fact the planet? Because we yeah, eventually get to else. a point where he begins to make references to Gaia. Right. Yeah. His final destination, they get to San Francisco, you know, from Hawaii and, you know, he's delirious at this point, completely feverish. And they transfer him to uh, a place called Hamilton Air Base, which by the way, no longer exists. And he basically laps into unconsciousness. His last thing he does is he insists on going out to feed the birds again. Then we find out that after 10 days of, of being on this Air Force base in quarantine, he dies. And, and then it mentions that all the government people who are attending him are dead. The, the woman way back when he was in New York who moved herself and her kids away from him, she's starting to get sick. And the story ends with this sort of uh, recounting of a tape recorder that was left running by Ains' bedside right before he died, where he's like, as Bill just mentioned, he's talking about, about Gaia Gloriatrix, and he starts wondering how the dinosaurs died. And the last thing he says is, have you ever thought about bears? They have so much funny they never came along farther. By any chance, were you saving them, girl? And on that sentence, the story ends. And... Again, we have managed to find a wonderfully bleak and wonderfully confusing <laughs> at times story for everybody to explore here. And so if you haven't quite figured it out and need to be spelled out, well, guess what? He's spreading this biological agent around the world to kill all the humans because he's convinced that humans are poisoning the planet. The planet is this woman he's been referring to all along, the idea of, of, of Gaia. At, and if we get rid of all the humans by introducing this biological agent for which there is no defense, we kill all the humans 
and the lower primates survive, all the birds survive, all the small mammals survive, and Earth goes on much for the better. Right, because although any warm-blooded animal can become a vector for spreading the disease, only the higher primates are actually victims of it, at least at 100% efficiency. Yeah, so apparently we got gorillas and orangutans and monkeys and humans are all going to die, but everything else is more likely than not is going to stick around. And so, yeah, it's almost as if he's musing at the end, maybe the bears will be the next, you know, apex species on the planet. Yeah, bears, and, he, you know, there's some, you know, he feeds the birds because they're another good transmission method of getting this virus to every place else in the world, uh, you know, kind of using them as a, as a method. So, yeah, you got one guy who's like, yep, uh, we're done with humans, and I'm going to make it happen. Is this building throughout the story, it, it seems just sort of innocuous at the, at the beginning. You know, there, there are details that are presented to us. And they slowly begin fitting a pattern and becoming more and more significant as we go. So we recognize all of these details about how he's spreading the disease and that the whole flight is about hitting as many places as he possibly can along the way to Moscow and beyond to continue to do this. But we also begin to see some of these details, the protesters about the environment and the ship belching you know, smoke or, or, or um, soot into the sky in New York Harbor all of these things become more and more relevant as the story goes on. And then, of course, in retrospect, you know, when he talks about meeting the woman and how she was healthy and, and great, it, you know, it's referencing his past and how the earth, you know, was free of pollution and doing very well. And that just slowly over time, you know, our actions made her sick and weak and all this stuff. Then we find out that after there's someone, I think it's the professor that he had worked with before, makes the the note at some point. He never seemed like an activist. And and so that's an interesting observation of him earlier on. And he moves, like his, his recollection when he's in Iceland and, and he has his, his vision that, that again proves to be the earth afterward. You know, he's young, he's innocent, he's just absolutely enamored of the beauty of nature and from that state, we understand that he becomes slowly more withdrawn, more morose, and more judgmental. And given the nature of the research that he does, he, at some point, it turns in his head that he has a solution or he could be part of the solution for eliminating this factor, this force that has been destroying the earth, and that factor being us. As Lynn Margulis, a noted um, guy, a hypothesis advocate and, and scientist from the 80s and 90s, you know, she refers to humans as ambulatory weeds. And Ain is very much in that mindset. Or you could just reference the Matrix, in which case we're a virus. There you go. One of the Smiths. Yeah, one of the things that is really kind of disturbing about this is just how realistic the story is, you know? Oh, yeah. We, we don't talk much, well, there, there's not a whole lot in this story that, that makes it dated. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the whole idea that there's people working in these, you know, biological containment labs working with this stuff that, you know, could potentially kill everybody on Earth is, you know, certainly plausible. If you think about it, either, you know, there's only three possibilities. A, we haven't done it yet. Uh, well, let's put it this way. A, you can't do it. It's not possible. B, it's possible, but we haven't done it yet. Or C, we've done it, and it just hasn't gotten out. I would suspect C is the place where we're at. 
the recent events of our pandemic in our own world, as it is, of course, there were conspiracy theories that erupted almost immediately that COVID-19 was released from a lab in China. Of and, course. And so, and, and there, of course, have been other stories along the way, other sci-fi and, and, and horror stories, typically, that, that deal with those kinds of things. You know, thinking about Stephen King's um, the, the, stand. the Stand and Resident Evil... You had the Omega Man, you had the Last Man on Earth, and I Am Legend, all of which are basically the same story, right? Right. They all come from the original novella, I Am Legend, that was written by sci-fi and horror grandmaster Richard Matheson. You know, and then you got stuff like 12 Monkeys, The Andromeda Strain. Yeah, with The Hot Zone. Remember that story? Well, that was a nonfiction book talking about Ebola. But yeah, you know, we've gone so far. We we make games out of this stuff, right? There's Plague Incorporated, which you can you know, unleash viruses on you know, the planet, there's card games. I think one of them's called the Goliath, Goliath virus card game. You know, we just love to make fun of all these things that can kill off humanity. But I mean, it's, it's really disturbing. If you look up things like, uh, you know, biosafety level four, which of course is all freely available. And if you really want some disturbing reading, you can look up all the different viruses that they've identified as potential killers of of humanity and there's probably 20 or 30 of them and they all affect us in different and and very negative ways so if you really feel like not sleeping spend some time on wikipedia researching these things yeah you know it turns out that a movie like outbreak from years ago isn't really that far off of the possibilities of how something like that might play out and that's a scary thought. And and of course, you know, we just went through this whole thing where they were able to trace the origin of COVID-19 back to China. And, you know, there's there are continuing debates about where exactly the first case came or, or what exactly was the vector that made it cross over from um, animal life to human life. But you know, all of that said, we watched live on the news as the virus spread from location to location to location because of travel between different countries and products traveling on ships that could have potentially carried the virus and so on. I mean, there's just so many different ways that our culture, that our, our society is vulnerable to something like this because we are so connected by commerce, among other things. Yeah, and whether you're a, a Wuhan lab leak believer or not, you know, it is what it is. It's here to stay, and we deal with it. And now, of course, we've got, you know, monkeypox to deal with as right. well. But, of course, we've had, you know, SARS. We've had HIV. We've had bird flu. We've had swine flu. We've had mad cow disease. And I'm sure there will be, you know, another long list of ways the planet is really all out to kill us. Now, that being said... We also have a long history and tradition of writing about, you know, people using viruses to try to kill others. I mean, it goes back to, I think the first one was published in 1883, was a novel where a guy was talking about, you know, mines that were, that had concentrated miasms and microbes of malignant fever, dysentery, measles, acute ontologia and other diseases so <laughs> so yeah we've got all sorts of crazy now of course you know back in the day it was all cholera and leukemia and you know then we got anthrax anthrax was always a big favorite aldous huxley when he wrote brave new world he was using anthrax bombs in there um, hg wells had a short story called the stolen bacillus that uses 
or that utilizes Asiatic cholera as the way to kill people. So yeah, we really like this topic as authors, apparently. Well, you know, there's a there's a dude that I just heard on Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast a little while ago. His name is Nicholas Christakis, and he wrote a really cool book as the pandemic was like flaming up. The book is called um, Apollo's Arrow. It turns out what this guy does is he's a he's a researcher that looks at patterns in in how um, things happen, and it's all you know quantitatively based. But he also looks into a bunch of stuff with human behaviors, you know, sociology and 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 so on. And we deal with plagues, and, and he's been the he's become this expert on what happens in a plague. And it turns out all of these things that happen are are patterns, you know. People have you know, developed theories about where things came from, including ones that are just pure BS. You know, conspiracy theory and lies and controlling the population through fear become big deals when it comes to dealing with a pandemic, dealing with a plague. And to be fair, not all conspiracy theories are untrue. You know, we do <laughs> yeah, have history go. of people actually doing these things, right? I mean, going back to... Uh, you know, the first reference, you know, 11, the, the year 1155, way back in the day, you've got, you know, people dumping human, dead human bodies into wells to poison right. people, you know, the population. You know, back in the 1600s, there were deals being made between the Germans and French to not use poison bullets. And then, of course, you get to World War One, right? You get to mustard gas and all these other wonderful things. So, well, in the story of westward expansion in the United States, you know, we we seeded blankets with smallpox and handed them out to the Native American nations that were here so that we could introduce a virus that we knew they had no defenses against. Yep, humanity at its best. You know, is there any reason that Dr. Rain kind of said, you know what, I think the planet's better off without us? You know, you could look at his, you know, his whole thing as a as a suicide pact, right? <laughs> Well, I guess it's not a not a murder suicide pact, which oddly enough is what happened to to Alice Sheldon and her husband. They had a suicide pact. So, kind of odd how you know, one of her early stories is about you know killing everybody off and the and the protagonist you know in doing so committing suicide. Yeah, and, and a little more detail on that. She and her husband, when they, well, he was the first one to start having some failing health, but they they made a pact. That and they even wrote the suicide note like years before they they wound up fulfilling the pact, where they basically decided, hey, if it gets to the point where one of us is going to go, we're both going to go because we don't want to live without one another. And that's exactly what happened. When was that? Somewhere in the eighties. Yeah, early. I think it was in the late seven. Well, I don't remember. Late seventies, early eighties. Nineteen eighty-seven. I, I had to okay. go back and look at my notes that I had written up at the top. So, cheery, cheery stuff. Absolutely. That just gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling reading all these stories, right? So we should probably, uh, let's let's go back to something a little less uh, disturbing <laughs> and talk a little bit about taking the sort of dated pieces of the story. Like we said before, it's not, you know, it, you could certainly envision it happening today. You know, there's certainly nothing stopping somebody from, well, there, I hope there's things stopping people, but... Theoretically, you know, taking this this biological agent on a bunch of flights and spreading it around the world. But, you know, in in the particular world of Dr. Ain, you know, you've got a few things that that show the story is written in the late 60s. You've got, you know, stewardesses handing out coats to people as they get off the airplane, right. which is a nice touch. That would never happen now. Um, 
Oh, no. And you've got, you know, references where, yeah, we just have, you know, people's names misspelled on flights, but yeah, we really don't care. And if you've been through airport security, that's just probably not going to happen. You know, he refers to things like the, this, this organization called BOAC, which is the British Overseas Airways Corporation, which eventually became British Airways in 1974, right? A reference to Sinair, which I think is Singapore Air. Yeah, you know, the, the Hamilton Air Force Base that closed in, I believe it was 1988. So, so if you look, there's a few things, and they're you know they're niggling little details, right? They don't really date the story. You know, change a few things around, and like I said, it could it could happen tomorrow. <laughs> Hopefully not. Oh, it's absolutely a story that could be easily updated. And so all of these references, you know, we we're just we've talked about this in other stories before, where sometimes those contemporary references that help something have a, a sense of place are the are the very things that make it feel dated afterward. But again, if you tweak some of those details or you just change the contemporary nature, you know, the, the time frame for those, replace it with reference to Southwest Airlines instead of BOAC or or you know the Concord or something like that. And you've got something that represents a different time frame. Yep, he's still having layovers at O'Hare and, and JFK, right? You know, the airports all still exist. Well, and we've seen lots of stuff happen right now where flights become spreader events for the ongoing pandemic, you know, where someone gets on the flight and although for a while masks were required, now they're not in, in most places. And so, you know, we see stories crossing social media about someone suspecting, hey, there's someone who was coughing on the flight. They didn't look so good. And sure enough, I got sick afterward. And guess what? I tested positive for COVID. So, you know, those kinds of things, it, I'll, I'll believe those stories, you know, some of them have got to be true. Some of them could be exaggerations, but it makes it possible for something like this story to continue or, or to, to actually happen today. Yeah, I'm really grasping for a upbeat tone to end this uh, particular episode on, and I'm really <laughs> having a hard time finding it because the more you think about it, you're like, oh man, this, this could really just happen tomorrow. Not sure what the safeguards are or the, you know, psychological profile of the people that are in these labs developing these things, but I'm, I'm hoping they do their job. You might begin to question just what kind of darkness is in us when, you know, we come off of one disaster story that we did in, a, in the previous episode. And guess what? We're talking about doing another one and continuing the arc of disasters in the next episode. Well, t to be fair, you know, I lose count of the number of times I've been at, you know, a dinner party and the topic of human extinction comes up. It's just, you know, something that we talk about all the time. Maybe that just says something about the people I hang around. People that I hang out with joke every once in a while about, you know, which people we want to take with us when we take over some sort of island to escape the collapse of humankind. <laughs> yeah, well, the problem with that is with this particular story, even islands are not yeah. safe. Well, as long as you got birds. That's right, because birds fly between islands, as it turns out. Damn birds. So, well, let's take a turn then with this story into our our scale that we that we evaluate stories on. Whoa, hmm, what the fuck? So where does this fall for you, Dan? Well, this was definitely a hmm story. And again, the, the hmm is more of a disturbing hmm. Is this actually going to happen eventually? So right. there was a little bit of woe. I, to be honest, I kind of guessed that that the woman was, you know, the Earth. It, it's right. If you've read enough of these types of stories, you're like, oh yeah, this is what it's going to turn out to be. 
But realistically, like I said, the the whole idea of how plausible it is really makes you think. This is another story where I look at it and I think I really wish that I could say that it was a what the fuck story, but I absolutely cannot. It is all too plausible and it is all too real in, in so many ways. I mean, I, I, you could imagine this. We talked about the imagining the story being made more contemporary and being you know, released again today, but the events themselves could, could happen, are happening around us even as we speak, although maybe not to this level of destruction. Yeah, I don't want this to be a contemporary story. Right, at least I don't want it to be contemporary history. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, it's bleak. That's okay. You know, it's a reminder that there's a lot of speculative fiction that poses utopic visions of what could be, but there's an equally strong tendency among authors of, of science fiction in particular to have really scientifically plausible ways for the world to end. And this just happens to be one of them. Now, to be fair, Tiptree is not generally one who does the destructive dystopian vision. She's known for a lot of other things, but it's still a good story. Yeah, she's much more known for stories that explore relationships between humans and aliens, including stuff that was kind of titillating at the time, you know, the sexual relations between humans and, and other species from across the galaxy. And maybe if we can tear ourselves away from our bleak outlook at the world, we'll turn back to some of those stories in future episodes. There we go. But which one are we going to cover next time, Bill? Next time we are covering Ray Bradbury's There Will Come Soft Rains. All right. More bleakness. That's right. Yeah, but trust me, you don't want to miss this one. So make sure you come on back. Bye.